Daniel, I'm one of the ministers here at LeClaire, and I'm excited to be with you today. Uh, this is our first Sunday of the new year. I hope this first week has uh, treated you well. Uh, and I actually had approached Andy uh, a couple months ago and asked him if he would let me kick off the year at LeClaire, and he uh, graciously obliged. Uh, so many of you know that I uh, am in grad school, and so I'm getting to do a lot of studying and reading all, lots of books. Uh, but there's one book that I was reading this past year that really shaped the way that I think about my faith. And it kind of helped lay the, the inspiration for wanting to, to speak this morning. And, and so, you know, this could be just a big convoluted mess. Uh, or my, my hope is that it helps you think a little more deeply about your faith. Uh, this book helped that, do that for me. Uh, so that's my first goal. Hopefully that, that happens. Uh, secondly, uh, if you are inspired and want to grab a great book to read, uh, it's called Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. Uh, he's a, a theologian and a, a great thinker, great writer. Um, and so that's, your, that's my plug for the morning. Uh, all right, so a couple of Years ago, or a few years ago, my wife and I moved into our home here in Illinois, moved here from Oklahoma, and uh, there was one evening, my, my parents were driving into town to come and visit, and they had already seen our house because they helped us move in, but they hadn't seen our home all put together with all the furniture up, everything on the wall, and so you know, there's this sense of pride and this excitement of wanting to get to show them your house and, and how you've made it a home. And so uh, they were coming in, we made dinner for them, and we were taking a tour of the house, and we got downstairs, we're kind of showing them our downstairs room. And then the last place was the garage, you know. Uh, I don't know why I wanted to show them the garage, but I did, I wanted to show them all of it. But, uh, so anyway, I, we go into the garage, and to my surprise... There is water just flowing from the ceiling into our garage, flooding the garage. And I immediately begin to panic. Uh, I'm not super handy. And so uh, I thought, man, somewhere there is a pipe that has burst and I don't know what to do. I was trying to rack my brain to try to even think of where the water shutoff valve was. And so I ran upstairs, and I was telling Kelsey, I don't know what's going on, There's, but there is like a monsoon of water just pouring from the ceiling into our garage. And then we both looked down the hall and realized, oh, our son is taking a bath. <laughs> and so we go down the hall, open the door, and there was Canaan, water pouring into the tub, the tub as full as can be, the water is still flowing into the tub, just overflowing everywhere, leaking into the floor, now into the garage. And yeah, it was a big mess that we had to, to clean up. Now, it's probably good that my mom and dad were there because I think that helped temper maybe a little bit of the frustration <laughs> that I was feeling. Now, as much as I didn't appreciate the overflowing of our upstairs bathroom into our garage, I, I want you to think about this image. Because this is an image that helps describe the kind of life that we are intended to live. That the fact that God's love flows so much into our life, but we can't help but allow it to overflow through us into the world around us. Overflow in your actions and your words and your compassion and your generosity and your hospitality. Where all of our work and, and our, our purpose and our pursuit of what is good and right and our decision to actively turn away from what is wrong doesn't come from a place of emptiness or obligation or guilt. 
but comes from this overflow of God's love and goodness in us. And not only that, but that it changes the desire in us to do these things. A life where the presence of God serves to provide the energy, the inspiration, and the motivation for whatever capacity or for whatever he calls us to do. Uh, For the prophet Jeremiah, he he describes it a little bit like this. Jeremiah was a prophet that was tasked by God to speak some really difficult truth to the nation of Israel around him. And uh, he's speaking about himself in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. He says this, But if I say I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. In fact, I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Jeremiah's love was so great, and he embraced this task of God so closely that that he couldn't help but speak his truth, even at the cost of his own reputation. We also read in John chapter 7, Jesus speaking of us, speaking of those who would come to believe and submit their lives to Jesus, Jesus tells them that rivers of living water will flow from within them. Uh, Living water, meaning water that never stops flowing. I also like this passage from Isaiah says, even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. God's goodness is a never-ending source of life and purpose and motivation. Have you ever had one of those moments where you are just mentally and emotionally and physically exhausted, but in, in your right thinking, you decide, you know, I'm just going to uh, sit down in, in God's presence and pray to him. And, and have you ever had one of those moments where in that time, just the, the overwhelming joy from your spirit overwhelms so much that all these other things seem like they're not limits to you anymore because his love and goodness so stirs your, your, your heart to overcome these things. It's because God is a constant source of life and strength, even when we are weary. And it's his presence that shapes our desires to do good. And this is the concept we want to talk about over the next several weeks as we begin this series called Overflow. We want to look uh, and talk about what does it look like to live from this place. And maybe more specifically, like, is that even possible? I mean, can, can our lives change so much that this describes who we could be? Because if I'm honest with you, sometimes that's a life that seems far out of reach. And I don't think that I am there yet. Sometimes the life of a Christian doesn't seem to align with what Jesus promises his followers when he says things like, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't always feel that. So how do we bridge this gap? between this picture of life that Jesus promises and the reality that sometimes we are facing with our continual struggles, our perpetual sins, our harmful attitudes and thought patterns. Now today, I just want to hit on three ideas, three concepts that I think keep us from experiencing this life lived from overflow. And they all revolve around this main idea that living from the overflow begins in the heart. Living from the overflow begins in the heart. This very idea of overflow assumes that there's something deep within us that is, is moving and flowing and, and, and overflowing. And so over the next few weeks, we'll kind of talk about what this life looks like perhaps on the outside, but we can't go there until we really begin on the inside. So the first thing we need to remember is this. To live from the overflow, we have to acknowledge 
the life within. We, we have to acknowledge that, that we have this internal uh, decision-making life within us. And we have to embrace God's definition of who we are to really understand how we were created to work. There's a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. It's a very foundational passage to our faith. Uh, let me give you just a little context. Moses is, is writing this book, and this is uh, at, at the next step in this, um, this narrative of the people of Israel becoming a nation. And they are getting ready to start to go into the land of Canaan that God has promised them. They've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and God has been revealing himself to them. He gave them the law. And so here we are in Deuteronomy, and Moses is basically repeating everything that they have learned so far about God to help prepare them and to help give them a foundation for their identity as they take on this new land. And this is what he says in chapter 6, verse 5. He says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus actually takes this passage and reiterates it later in his ministry, and, and he's actually speaking to a, a, a Greek audience, and so he, he adds the word, he adds the mind as well. So heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and we read a verse like this, I'm sure you've heard it before, and we see that this, yeah, would be a really foundational uh, verse that describes our faith, that describes our purpose as God followers. This is what we do. We love God with all that we are. But this verse also teaches us another profound truth. And that's you and I are far more complex than what we see on the surface. That, that we are made up of all these different dimensions, heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have minds that consist of both our thoughts and our feelings. We have a physical body. That's how we know one another. We see them. We can, we can hold their hand. We can hug them. And, and our own bodies even have desires of their own sometimes that are contrary to our, our minds or our feelings. We also have this soul that works to, to pull all these things together, to work in harmony together. And we have a heart and we have a will that serves as the catalyst for the transformation of all these other dimensions of our being. Now, we could do a whole series really looking at each of these parts of who we are. In fact, that's what that book is all about. Uh, so I encourage you to go get it and read it. But today I want to focus on the one place that Jesus regularly focused on in his ministry, and that is the heart. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 7, verse 15. He says, It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. And then a few verses later, For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. So basically what Jesus is, is saying is that it's not just the things that you act on, but even just the very desires within you help show that there is something broken with our hearts and with our wills. Matthew 12, 34 to 35, For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. How do you talk to others? How do you address those that you are close with in your life? Jesus is helping us see some of those indications of the nature and condition of our heart. And, and what he's saying echoes what we see throughout the Old Testament. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? 
In Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Scripture is clear about this foundational aspect of our lives. We are not just what you see on the outside. Uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I went to Branson with some of our family members for Christmas. And uh, we drive, uh, we've got a minivan. It's coming up on 200,000 miles. And I'm just like praying that this thing lasts for another 200,000 miles. Uh, but we were driving down and I began to notice there was this growing rattling sound in deep within the car. And uh, the last place I want to be is far away from home if, if, if we're going to break down on the side of the road. And so we were in Branson, and we made the hard decision, you know what, let's just go and take it in. I didn't know how long it would be. Thankfully, my dad was there so he could drive me. Uh, and so, because I knew there was no way I would be able to figure out what is wrong. All I could hear was what, all I knew was what I could hear uh, on the outside. But deep within, there are people that were able to go in and diagnose what the situation was, and they were able to fix the problem. But you and I are, are much the same way. There are a lot of things that show up on the surface that, uh, actually are an indication of what's happening on the inside. This is how God created us. We are a dichotomy of physical and spiritual. When God created human beings, he made them unique among all creatures, and he placed his unique stamp, of human, uh, his unique stamp on humankind, uh, the only creatures that says to be made in his image, a concept that is often denied in our world today. And as a part of being made in his image, our lives are lived from this inner place, our hearts. Uh, other creatures, when they make decisions, they, they kind of make decisions based off of, of, of instinct or based off of just this hunger or, or this, this physical drive just to, to feed themselves and to uh, quench their thirst. But only humankind has been gifted with a genuine will, just like our creator, the ability to initiate and to create and to originate, and, and to originate ideas that once didn't exist, but now they do exist, and to originate conversations that once didn't exist, but now they can exist. It's this aspect of our being that is what gives every single human dignity, no matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter your age, from the time you were conceived in the womb to the day you die. And it is this reality that we have the ability to set our own course that shapes how God interacts with us, never compelling or forcing our obedience to him. Because to do so would compromise this very reality and would compromise our ability to truly love, which necessitates a choice that he has freely and graciously given us so that we could be people, we could be creations of His that could truly experience ultimate goodness and joy that comes from that freedom, so that we could ultimately reflect and glorify Him more than any other creatures that He creates. This is a part of us, our wills and our hearts. And when properly understood, this is what drives and organizes the rest of our lives. This will of ours is, has been shaped and it is always being shaped. It's from here that we make decisions. And, and sometimes we can bring these choices to our conscious minds. Like if, if I go in today and I know it's cold outside, so I'm going to decide what to wear. And we can think about those things. But sometimes the decisions we make, we don't even think about. They just naturally occur. Uh, similarly, and, and these also still come from the heart. 
some good examples. For example, I, I, I'm a father, and so anytime I hear one of my kids cry or, or sounds like they're in trouble, I'm going to go to them and comfort them and figure things out because I love them, and, and I, I have a heart hopefully full of love for them. Those are good things. But sometimes, oftentimes, our wills and our hearts have grown to respond to a broken world in broken ways. This can explain why maybe some of us, it's really easy to lose our temper in certain circumstances. And we can even look back on those moments and be frustrated because we know that wasn't the right thing to do. But there's this war going on between our hearts and our minds because we're living a disordered life. This might explain why sometimes we might use biting words in our uh, handling of conflict because that's what we saw growing up. And so that's how we've decided to, or that has been shaped in our hearts. It can explain why we might get so easily offended, why we might struggle with forgiveness, why we might struggle with identity, why we might cower and simply defer to others because that's what we've learned to do to protect ourselves because of maybe some of the pains and hurts that we've faced in the past. Why we grow jealous, why we might have the need to prove ourselves to other people, to bend the truth a little bit, to make us look a little better. Why we seek solace and comfort and physical pleasures like food and sex and alcohol or just binge-watching TV. Why we don't naturally consider the needs of others. Our hearts have been trained to respond, sometimes in destructive and sinful ways. And sometimes these responses are so ingrained in us that we don't even recognize that we are doing them. They're shaped by our thoughts that we allow in, by the experiences that we face, by the culture that we live in and maybe by the hurts we faced in the past. But as we open ourselves up to the love of God, He reveals our true inner self. He, he, he reveals these areas. And I bet if you were to ask a trusted friend or maybe a spouse or someone that spends a lot of time with you, uh, what are maybe some of those areas in my own life that I'm blind to? I'm sure that they could point some of those out. That's honestly not a bad idea as we grow to learn those ways that Maybe we have some continued idols in our life. But before I move on to this next obstacle, keeping us from living from the overflow, I want to take just a little aside because I think thinking of ourselves in this way of spiritual and physical is not a really common way that that we at this point in human history that we're living, that that our our culture and our society views humanity. Uh, There's this common underlying philosophy that Um, that we really are just our physical beings, that we're no much more than just the sum of our physical parts. Everything in this world can be explained just by physical means, things you can touch and see and feel. Uh, The the fancy word for this is the idea of materialism, and it it, it shapes a lot of, of what we see in our world today. Basically, everything can be defined in physical terms, and it, it, it denies the spiritual and the supernatural. And so with this perspective in mind, one's body is, is all that there is. And so it makes sense that the greatest end for a human being would simply be to just appease any physical desires that you have without recognizing any consequences that that can have on the other realms of our beings because we just deny those other things. So, for example, in our, in our own life, you, emotion and beauty, none of these have anything, any other transcendent value than, the, than, than just simply the physical so when you, uh, just even thinking about how this has paved the way for how we view ourselves, uh, an example, you know, several decades ago, we went through this, this phase called the sexual revolution. And this is an example of whenever you view yourself as only a physical being, what, what was an act was separated, what was a physical act was separated from this transcendent 
commitment and value of the marriage relationship. It led to the breakdown of many families. And when we fail to see ourselves as we truly are, when we fail to acknowledge this inner life, it can have destructive consequences and lead people to live far more shallow realities of humanity than, than what God says is, is true. To live from the overflow, we have to acknowledge this life within. Everything we do begins here. This is why Jesus came for the sinners. This is why he said he, he came for those who were sick on the inside. And he did a lot of miracles and he healed a lot of people physically to demonstrate his power. But a lot of that was to show that he also had the power to heal people from the inside out. And this is why he came to people like Zacchaeus and invited him over to his house, invited himself over to a, a sinful man who was cheating people out of their money because Jesus desired to come and to, and to help them. He spoke hard truth to those who had a propensity to miss out on the life-giving presence of a Savior and trade that in to just stay busy with all of their household duties. He came to say things like, no, it's, it's not enough that you don't commit murder. No, the fact that you are even angry at your brother demonstrates that there's something within your heart that needs to change. It's not enough that you don't just commit adultery. No, the fact that you're looking at somebody the way that you are demonstrates that there is something deeper in your heart that needs to change. The fact that you allow the worries of your life to consume reveals that there is a heart issue. If we desire to live from the overflow, we have to acknowledge this reality about who we are. We can't expect to change without understanding ourselves, and we have to strive to consistently see these dimensions of our being. This is one of the greatest gifts that God's Word gives us. It helps show us who we truly are. So to live from the overflow, we have to acknowledge the life within. And once we do that, we must grasp then God's vision for genuine transformation. To live from the overflow, we have to grasp God's vision for transformation. Of the in this area comes from the example of Israelites in the Old Testament. I know so many of you have probably started a Bible reading plan this year, and, and I know getting through those early chapters sometimes can be a challenge, but man, stick with it because there is so much great truth that we see in this example of God's people. You know, when you step back uh, into Genesis and Exodus, we read about how God had promised this man Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation, and, and this nation would be a light to all the other nations, and, and we can learn so much for how, how God connects and communicates and relates to his people. But, you know, in Exodus, we find this group of people, they've grown, but they are enslaved to the Egyptians, much like how you and I are in bondage to our own sin. And when we pick up this story in Exodus, they are a far cry from the description that God had given Abraham of the people that they would be. So in a miraculous fashion, God delivers them. And they were powerless to save themselves but as they emerge from the crossing the Red Sea, just as you and I emerge from the waters of baptism, they found themselves in a moment where they were finally, truly free, just like we are. And from that moment on, they were living from a place of deliverance. Just as you and I, from that moment we choose to follow Jesus on, are living from a place of salvation. That was their identity. They were no longer an enslaved people. But 
they were still really far from being the people that God had called them to be. They were disorganized. They were disorderly. They didn't really know how to worship God in the first place. They had a lot to learn, and God began to put them, uh, uh, allow them to walk through a, a journey. In fact, there were times that they wanted to return to their captivity. They wanted to return to their old life, and, and they began this journey of unlearning the ways of Egypt and tearing down the idols that had brought the oppression that came the life that God had created them to live. And so God began to slowly reveal himself, to slowly reveal that true living and genuine change only came from constant communion and partnership with him. And he led them on a necessary journey that helps instill this in them. This is what humankind was created for. This new knowledge of God and, and his laws that would shape them to become his prized people. And through things like the tabernacle and the sacrificial system, he, he allowed for his presence to live among the people because it is his presence that would transform them. Just as because of what Christ did for us, God's presence can live within us and can shape us from the inside. God was showing them and teaching them that they were never designed to live apart from him. In fact, he is the key to who they truly are. That our hearts and our wills were designed to submit to an all-powerful, everlasting, almighty God. If it happens, everything else takes care of itself. We once lived just like them in disorder and dysfunction, but God brings back order to who we truly are. Our minds, our hearts our souls, and our bodies. And he led them in times of wandering in the desert, desert, times of not knowing where their next meal would come from, not knowing what the next day would hold. But God used this to shape them and to mature them. And this, this begs the question, though. If, if God could miraculously save us from bondage, why would he not miraculously mature us to be perfect, to have wills that are 100% of the time, always submitting him that are always wanting to do the right things. I don't know if I have a answer to that question, but I think, it, I think this gets close to it. Because I think to do so would compromise his image in us. I think to do so would compromise the will that he created to have. Because a mature heart has to be shaped over a period of time in partnering with him. Listen to what Psalm 32, 8, 9 says. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. He's never going to force you or compel you, but I will instruct you and teach you. I will counsel you in my, with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse and the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. God does not treat us like some subservient creatures. He doesn't deny the dignity that he has placed in us by giving us a gentle you know, my goal, my goal as a dad is hopefully one day that my kids will grow up and, and they won't have to make decisions with me helicopter parenting around them, telling them everything that they ought to do. Because I know that it is that maturity in them that will allow them to enjoy a fruitful and a full life. For us, there is a joy and a freedom that comes with spiritual maturity. This is God's desire for all men and all women as his prized creation. A horse and a mule must be controlled by, by a rider at all times, and they have no way of truly demonstrating free will. But God did not create us to be robots or de domesticated animals who don't have this to choose. He does not strip us of this aspect of our being that reflects him and glorifies him the most, our hearts. 
God's desire is that there would be a right spirit in you that still maintains the ability to govern yourself because that is an incredible gift that he has given to mankind alone. But it is only in submitting to him that we truly experience the ultimate flourishing of humanity that that can come. This is why James speaks that the trials and tribulations that we feel, that we face can be joys because they help our heart and they help shape the heart within us. This is why we encourage you to train yourself spiritually, why we want you to be here every single week, why we want you to be in a life group and go through things like Rooted. We're starting signups next week, by the way. Why we want you to pursue as you're reading scripture every single week. Why we want you to spend time in the presence of God to remember that you are not just physical, but you're spiritual as well. Why we encourage you to strive to live holy lives. Because as our minds and our bodies do the difficult things that sometimes feel unnatural to our sinful selves, it shapes our hearts within. And before long, you begin to notice I'm actually desiring to do the right things. It's actually something that is coming from who I truly am. And and I'm actually desiring, I actually don't desire the things that I did before. You'll begin to notice this change. People who live by the grace of God are not those who continue to live out their sinful natures and say, oh, God's going to forgive me. That is not a life of grace. A life of grace is one that relies on the power of God daily to provide the self-discipline needed to change your heart. A life of grace is one that relies on the power of God daily to provide the self-discipline and the power needed to change your heart. And so this process of partnering with Him in your spiritual formation is as every bit as important as the maturity that it seeks to get to. Your life is incomplete, disheveled, disorganized, at war with itself without Him. And our spirits are meant to live in constant connection with Him. This is a reason that Jesus came into the world to show us what a life of obedience truly looks like. And then He died on the cross to give us the power to allow that to happen. To live from the overflow, we have to acknowledge this inner life. And we also need to grasp God's vision of genuine change. And the last is this. To live from the overflow, we must never think that we are beyond repair. Uh, I love this passage in, in Mark chapter 10. I find myself always referring to it. There's this man who comes up to Jesus. He falls on his knees and he asks them this all-important question. He says, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit e- eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and says, well, you... You know the commandment. You know, it says, you know, honor your father and mother and, and don't steal and, and don't lie. And he responds, oh, yes, I've done all of these things since I was a boy. And then Jesus, Jesus looks at him and he says, there's one thing you lack. You know, Jesus had the ability to look inside us and to see our hearts. He says, you need to sell all your possessions, give to the poor. And we read that this man gets up and, and, and walks away sad. It says because he had great wealth. Now in that moment, I don't know what the rest of the story for this guy is. I don't know if he ended up following Jesus' advice and doing what he asked to do. But I do know that Jesus saw a man and recognized that deep within him there was some disordered priorities. And his love for us was, was confronting those. But there's, there's a phrase in there 
that brings me a lot of encouragement. It's in Mark 10, verse 21. Right before Jesus is about to deliver this difficult news to him of what he must do next, it says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. In this man's incompleteness, in his brokenness, in his disordered life, Jesus loved him. I know that some of you have stories, perhaps deep wounds and hurts from your childhood or maybe from harm that people have caused you that have deeply shaped your heart. Maybe you've convinced yourself that you are beyond repair. But I want you to know that God really can change your heart. And there will be days where it looks and feels like he led the Israelites through the Red Sea or how he toppled the walls of Jericho. He does all the work. But there's also going to be times where he leads you in places where he asks you to partner with him. His eye will always be on you, but he asks you to put in the effort and the perseverance and the discipline. Over time, as we acknowledge this life within, as we grasp his vision of true life change, that we really can be people that come to a point where all our desires are in line with God. And as we recognize that we are never beyond repair, we too will be people whose lives overflow with the goodness of God. Let's make that our prayer this year. As we close, if, if you have a, a decision to make, if you want to just pray with me or Kelsey will be up here as well, if there's something going on in your life, maybe the first thing is start to bring to the surface some of those areas in your life that are broken. This is a great first step. Or maybe you've never made that decision to fully submit your will to Jesus. And maybe today you may grasp what that means a little bit more. If that's you, we'd love to talk to you as well. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing and feel free to come and join us for prayer. God, we are grateful for who you are. We're, we're thankful for how you reveal our true nature. It's not a bad thing for us to realize how poor in spirit we are, how broken we are, how much in need of righteousness we are. I pray that that would be the motivation for us to live in your presence daily because it is you alone that can change our hearts. I pray that you would begin to do that in the lives of those who are here and the lives of those at our church. Before we even think about what it looks like on the outside, help us to be right on the inside. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.